Okay, we are, we are in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. And let me, let me just pick up here in verse 37 again and talk a little bit more about love. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. It says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. You know, I was reading and... uh, this book by, by Pascal. So Pascal is this, this famous mathematician, physicist, inventor. And, and then he was also this, this great theologian in the latter part of his life. And he actually died, natural death, at the, end, at, at the age of 39. So he died very young, but just an utterly amazing mind. I mean, many people consider, consider him you know, among the top ten scientists that have ever lived. He's really that good. He's talking about this, this question of love. You know, I don't know how to, how to really talk much about love. I mean, how do, you, how do you work to love someone or to love something? And what he says is that there is this enormous chasm between love and knowledge, between knowing God and loving Him. He says, how great is the chasm between knowing God and loving Him? This question arises by, sometimes my colleagues in the religion department have gotten upset with me that why I'm teaching what I'm teaching. You know, why do I I stand up and teach things from the Bible when I'm a chemist? They don't stand up and teach chemistry because they're theologians and teachers of religion. And I, I've always wondered why it concerned them so much. And, and uh, uh, it may be, and it's occurred to me, it may be because they're thinking like the Pharisees. The Pharisees, it says, it bothered them that the people were going to Jesus and not to them. I wonder if, if they were concerned that Many students were coming to me for understanding on the scriptures rather than going to them. I can't do what they do. When it comes to theology, I'm not a theologian. I don't know how to deal with it. But I'm not trying to teach theology. I'm trying to display the love of God. You know, this a man commenting, Peter Creed comments on... on uh, Pascal's words about this chasm between knowing God and loving Him. And we, in this generation, like to separate knowing God from knowing about God. Well, okay, he knows about God. I know God. Well, Pascal didn't make the distinction. He made the distinction between knowing God and loving God. And Peter Kreef says this. He says that the one in the universe who knows God the best loves God the least. His name is Lucifer. It's really quite profound. 
I mean, Satan, it says in the scriptures, would walk into the throne room of God and start talking with him. Remember, Satan was, Lucifer who fell, was one of the highest of angelic creatures. So he has spent a lot of time with God. He knows God very well. But he loves God the least. So knowing is not just it. It is absolutely loving God. Jesus doesn't say, you are to know the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He doesn't say that. He says, you are to love the Lord your God. Then he says, and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Not know your neighbor, but love your neighbor. And I, I was thinking about this. If I had... If I had one week left to live, what would I do? So I was, I was playing this game with my son. I told him a week ago, I said, I have one week left to live. What would it be like if I had one week left to live? How would I order my life? So we were talking about this. And so he says, well, what would you do? I said, well, I, I certainly wouldn't go to my office and think, I've got to finish this last manuscript. Publish this last paper on organic chemistry to benefit you know, the, the, the world so that they'll know. I wouldn't do that. I, I told them, what I would do is I would surround myself with my children and with my wife. That's what I would do. I would surround myself with the people that are dear to me. I said, I wouldn't even let you go to school for the week. I just would want every moment with you. He says, you wouldn't even let me go to school. I said, well, if I let you go to school, I would go with you. And I would just sit next to you in your class, which really embarrasses him. But it's just a game. But this is what I would do. I would never let my children out of my sight for that week. I would be with my wife, holding her hand the whole time. Because this is what it really gets down to. You know, when you, when you think that this is it, this is when we get to the things that matter most. You know, I have a dear friend who lives in Israel. And he, he and his wife um, are there, and they, they, they're Messianic Jews, and, and they share with people. And he sends out a lot of emails. Like twice a day, he sends me emails. And it's always about Hezbollah and Hamas and Bible prophecy. And, you know, we're living in the days that Jeremiah prophesied of. And, and, and uh, you know, God help the United States if they don't stand for Israel at this time. And, you know, it's just this barrage of emails, you know, twice a day. And as soon as I see it, I just log on. I just open it up just to make sure that, you, you know, there's, there's not a, you know, something hasn't happened to my daughter because, you know, he kind of watches over her too, and I'm very grateful. But interestingly, in the last three or four days, none of his emails have been on that topic. None. I got an email that his daughter-in-law, who is bearing twins, has a severe liver infection. So she's gone into the hospital, and then it turned out that they had to remove the twins by cesarean section a month early because the mother's liver infection is so bad. So constantly, the emails now, nothing about Hamas, nothing about Hezbollah, nothing about the prophecies of the end times. It is my grandchildren, my daughter-in-law, my son. This is normal. You see what happens is when the things of life come, up, come at us 
And what we treasure most might be lost. What happens? It changes our whole focus. What is it that I really love most? What is it that I love most here? You, you look at men who know the Lord in the last period of their lives. They become very focused on God. And just reading the Bible, they're not watching TV anymore. You get a man who's dying of cancer, who has a month left. It's, n- it's not TV anymore. It's not you know, turning on the radio and listen- listening to talk radio. No more Rush Limbaugh. It's, give me my Bible. I want to know more about God and get to know God better. And I want to see what it, it means to love God You know, Jesus gets at the very essence. This is the core of what will bring contentment in a life. It is not knowledge of God. It is not theology. That is good and there is a place for it. But it is the love of God. Jesus brings us back to, you are to love God. And I thought, how do I communicate love? How do I do it? And I thought, Lord, do I love you? And I yeah, I love you. I would die for you, Lord. I really love God. I love to spend time with Him. I love to be around Him. I love to think about Jesus. You know, when I, if, if, if I haven't had sufficient time in the morning to read the Bible and to just, just meditate on the Lord, I feel all day like I've, I've missed something. And it bothers me. I just love to be in His presence. But how do I communicate that to other people? And I'm not sure. I don't know how to how to communicate love. I mean, maybe, maybe you do. I don't know how to do it. Other than the fact that if I only had one week to live, I would want to surround myself with the ones that I love. And that's what Jesus says. He says, you are to love God with everything you have. And he brings us back to love. And it is very different than just a theological or religious knowledge. Because that in and of itself does not create love. It doesn't make love. It's something much different than that. All right, let's move on. Verse 41 of Matthew chapter 22. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, then how... Does David in the scripture call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. I don't know if you've you've ever met a man that was just so smart, you're afraid to ask him a question for looking stupid. You think you might look stupid. Has that ever happened to you? It certainly happened to me. It's happened to me several times. Just, you know, don't want to ask them questions for fear that I'm going to look stupid. I remember I was an assistant professor, and the first meeting I attended, this guy gave this talk, and, and uh, uh, he, he's a very famous, famous chemist. His, his name is uh, 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 Von Schleier. You know, with a name like Von Schleier, he's got to be smart. You know what I mean? And, and uh, he had been a professor at Princeton, then he moved to Germany, and he's now a professor in Germany. And, and uh, so he's come back to the United States. He gave this lecture. And afterward, there was this little 
reception, and I said, you know, I really enjoyed that your your talk on the theoretical chemistry. He says, it's not theoretical chemistry; it's computational chemistry. Oh, about five seconds later, this famous synthetic chemist walks up, and here, here I was, just a young assistant professor, my first semester, and I, you know, thought I blew it. You know, now he's going to think I'm dumb. So this old organic chemist comes walking up and walks up to Slider and says, Hey, I really like that uh, theoretical chemistry talk. <laughs> then I thought, hey, I'm not so stupid after all. You know, this, this old classical organic chemist, you know, who's got all this fame, said the same thing I did. So, um, anyway, you know, Von Schleier was really splitting hairs on that one. But anyway, they asked Jesus this question. Jesus, they, uh, they had been asking Jesus a series of questions, and then Jesus asks them a question. He says, let me ask you a question. These are all the religious teachers. Now, you've got to appreciate in Judaism what these religious teachers are like. It's very much like it is today. You know, these guys, if you go to Israel, they'll sit in their little Hillels, and these Orthodox Jews, they don't work. Orthodox Jews in Israel, the men don't work. The women do. The women go out and make a living. The men don't work. Well, they don't work like you and I think of work. They go to these Hillels and they read scriptures all day and argue about them. And they read the Talmud all day and they argue about it. This is what they do. And, and it's a big problem in Israel because you have these groups of people now that are having a lot of children and all the males don't work among them. So for the, the ultra-Orthodox Jews, none of them are working in Israel, and they are supported by the government. And then they have kids, lots of kids, and they get more and more support from the government, and they don't fight in the army either. So you didn't know that. Yeah, this is what they don't fight in the army, and there's a lot of tension in Israel because of that. These guys love the scriptures so much, and they argue about it all day. And now Jesus poses to them one question, and they're stuck. I mean, he knew exactly what to do. And they're confused on this thing. They're just stuck on this. And they don't know what to say. And so he says to them, you know, whose son is the Christ? It's the Messiah. So our Bible translates it Christ. It means the Messiah, the one who is to come and save Israel. Whose son is he? They say the son of David, which is right. He says, well, how come David calls him Lord? If he's his son, why did he say, the Lord said to my Lord? So Jesus has really got them here. So, so you know, they're kind of confused and they're so impressed with this that they weren't able to answer that they're afraid to ever ask him another question because they really look bad in front of this guy. He's only like under 35 years old. And so... And he's never been to their religious school at all. He's not an ultra-Orthodox. He's not a Pharisee. He's just a carpenter's son. And they're really stumped by this. And, you know, you begin to think about this. And you say, why doesn't God reveal himself more clearly? Why doesn't he reveal himself more clearly? I mean, that there's all these questions in the Bible that come up. Think of it this way. If we wanted to be sure that everybody knew that God really existed, don't you think God could do it? What if at 6 p.m. every day, to every individual on earth, he performed some personal little miracle? So at 6 p.m., you know, some miracle occurs in my life. Oh, you know, just all of a sudden there's this poof of smoke and, 
You know, it says, God was here. You know, and something. God could do that. Couldn't He? He could do it for everybody. And then everybody would know. And, you know, you worry about other religions coming up. And He says, Jesus is the way, the only way. Okay. You know, it's 6 p.m. every day. He could do that. Why doesn't He? Why doesn't He? Why are these, these mysteries here? He, he's the son of David, yet David calls him Lord. I mean, how can that be? Why are all these mysteries? Why does he somehow conceal himself? Why isn't it clearer in nature? You know, that you would, you would look at a rainbow, and it would say in the Hebrew alphabet, you know, Jesus is Messiah. Then we would all know. And nobody would go to hell, Right? I mean, God's all loving and all compassionate. Why doesn't He just do that little miracle? And there'd be no confusion. You know, Bertrand Russell, who was, who was one of the, the world's most prolific atheists, when he was on his deathbed, says that a, a, a friend of his, who was not an atheist, went to him and asked him, Now you're dying. You don't have much longer to live. What if you were wrong? What if you were wrong that really God does live and you're about to appear before Him? What would you say? And Bertrand Russell responded, I would say, Sir, obviously I was wrong. But let me ask you one small little question. Why didn't you give us more Evidence. That's what Bertrand Russell said that he would say. And that's a good question. That's a valid question. I can't come against the guy for, for saying that. Because I feel the same way sometimes. Here my, my colleagues have no belief in God at all. None. They don't believe in God. And I study the same things they do. And I look through the same microscopes that they do. And I'm like, God, you are amazing. And they're like, there is no God. They come out with a totally opposite conclusion. And they're not stupid. They're very smart. In fact, my colleagues are smarter than me. They really are. And it's not like they're mean or anything. But this is the conclusion they come to. God, why didn't you make it more obvious? Doesn't this ever occur to you? Doesn't it ever bother you like this? So this guy, Pascal, starts commenting on this. And he says, you know, the scriptures plainly told us that God would not reveal himself in the obvious. He would reveal himself in the hidden things, not in the obvious things. So he's just doing what the prophecies have talked about. That's all he's doing. He's doing what the prophecies talked about. So the prophecies are perfectly fulfilled. Now let me read you this. It says, We tend to assume that Christ acted as we would have acted, that he would do anything to attain the end of universal acknowledgement, allegiance and discipleship, like a modernist, theologian, desperate to be fashionable and accepted. Instead, like the prophets, he says he comes to do two things, to open some eyes and to shut others. 
reveal himself to some and conceal himself from others simultaneously by the same words and the same works. He came to give light as a gift, not to force it on us. A gift must appeal to freedom. It must be freely accepted as well as freely given. There must be freedom to refuse it also. And this is exactly what the scriptures tell us. That he came to open some eyes, he came to close others. But this thing of free will, he never pushes past our free will. God is so gracious in that. Remember we had studied this in the, in the sexual ethics section, that without, without free will, love itself is impossible. We have to allow a person free will, or there can be no true love. It means that the same light that fulfills some's, some threatens others. The same divine nature, the same justice and righteousness and holiness, the same unselfish love and self-surrender and willingness to suffer that is heaven to the saints is hell to the sinners. And Christ does not deliberately and delightedly hide from the wicked or blind them. He can't help it, just as the sun can't help shining. Too bad the bat's eyes can't take it. He blinds sinners simply by being what he is. There's enough to enlighten and enough obscurity to humiliate. There's enough obscurity to blind the reprobate and enough light to condemn them and deprive them of an excuse. What if God had only permitted one religion? What's with all these different religions? I mean, it becomes so confusing. The author writes, he gives exactly the right amount of light. If he gave less, even the righteous would be unable to find him, and their will would then be thwarted. But if he gave more, even the wicked would find him against their will. Thus he respects and fulfills the will of all. If he gave more light... The righteous would not learn humility, for they would, not, they would know too much. If he gave less light, the wicked would not be responsible for their wickedness, for they will know too little. You know, God really knows what he's doing. He really does. And I hear people talk about the weather. They oh, they have stinking weather. You, you want to try to run this thing? You want to try, did you ever try to have a fish tank? I can't even keep a few stinking fish alive. Even my beta fish died. You ever have a saltwater fish tank? You know, the pH changes slightly and everything's dead. And you're like, there's $200 worth of fish just floating in there. Imagine keeping the oceans and all these fish alive with all the sludge that people pump into it. I mean, it's an amazing ecosystem. God balances so much and does it so well. You know, I was, I was reading this, this analysis of hurricanes. You're talking about why did you know, hurricanes hit the coast? The things that hurricanes do for the coast that is beneficial is just tremendous by stirring up the coastal areas. You know, it's hard on our houses and stuff, but what it does for the environment is really good. God really knows what he's doing. And he set this earth at the perfect time people are here on earth. At the perfect time. You know, there's no other, there's no other planet, there's no other planet 
in anywhere that we know of in our universe, that you could look up and behold the heavens. Either the cloud cover is too much and you would see nothing ever, or the light is too bright and you could see nothing ever. This is the only place that we know of in our universe that we've identified that you could, on the planet, look up and behold the heavens, behold the stars and study them. This is so well balanced, so well tuned. Even the atheist who's a mathematician would say it's extraordinary. It's like one in ten to the sixtieth that we should be here. The numbers are absolutely extraordinary. And then, and then as, you, as you read on, let's read on into chapter 23. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to the disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. And they tie heavy burdens. And he goes on and on, and he starts blasting, absolutely blasting the Pharisees. And it's like, yes, give it to them. They deserve it. He goes down. He says uh, in verse 11, But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, but whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And then come the woes. Woe to the Pharisees, he starts. And there are seven or eight woes. There are really eight woes, but two of them are the same, so there's, there's seven different ones. He says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. And as I read through this, I said, Lord, this isn't just for the Pharisees. I know this is for me. And I said, Lord, as I read through this, expose to me where I have done the very same thing. Lord, show me my wretchedness. God, just boom. I mean, this, this, this memory system that we have is extraordinary. I mean, all these memories start coming up of my violations in this area. Let me give you some examples. You haven't lived as long as I have, so you haven't sinned as much. But let me give you examples. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, in verse 14, because you devour widows' houses, and for pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. I've prayed long prayers in prayer meetings that I would never pray on my own. Just to look like a good Christian. I've done this more than once. I've actually done this lots of times. You devour widows' houses. I've done kind of this. I have. Kind of. I mean, let, me, let me give you an example so you see how wicked my heart is. And, and um, maybe, maybe you can avoid it, or maybe you can say, hey, I've done that too. You know, I, I've, I've talked to women who their husbands left them, so in a sense, they're kind of like a widow. And as I'm talking to them, my mind is doing things with them in my mind that it ought not to be doing, as I'm speaking on a very different subject. And so, in a way, I'm using them in a way that's sinful and I should not be. I've done this. I've done that. I'm just like the Pharisees. 
Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on the sea and the land to make uh, proselytes. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Woe to you, blind guides, who say... All right, well, anyway, let's stop there. I've I've done 15. It says, you, you go around, you make converts. And when you make them a convert, you make them twice as much a son of hell as yourself. I mean, these are pretty strong words. These are really pretty strong words. If you, ne- if you think that Jesus never said anything that would offend somebody, I mean, how's this? I mean, all, all the guy was doing was going out and witnessing Judaism. And he gets a proselyte, and Jesus says, oh yeah, that guy you, you, you got converted, he's now twice as much a son of hell as you are. I mean, did the, did the Pharisee deserve that? Probably no more than you and I deserve it. But I've done that. I've, I've witnessed God so much and felt so compelled to share Jesus that I have I've gotten to the point where I would, when I was in graduate school, I would go door to door knocking on, and I'd go through apartments around campus, you know, these smaller apartment complexes around campuses. And I'd knock on doors and I was so tired and so weary, but I felt compelled that I had to, to share and witness that I would... You know, go into this apartment room and, and see this guy watching TV, sitting there watching a ball game. And I'm thinking, as I'm sharing with him, do I really want to see him converted? So that he could end up as ragged as I am, doing what I really don't want to do. Here he is so comfortable in his home. And I want to take him from this place of comfort and make him like me. Because I'm really quite miserable right now, but I feel compelled to have to do this. And so, you know, my heart's not even really in this. I've done this type of thing. I've done it. Jesus is talking about me. When you read this, just, just think, woe to Jim Tour. Just, just fill my name in there. He says, he, 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 go, he goes down and he says, uh, uh, verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and neglected the weightier provision of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. So what does he say? He says, you Pharisees tithe on everything, right down to your spices you tithe on. He says, but you've forgotten the more important things of justice, mercy and faithfulness. You know, I can be so mean sometimes, so mean, so mean-spirited and so sharp with my words. I say things, and it's not just in the far past. I mean, I say things in the very recent past that have been mean and sharp to people that for a week I feel bad about it. And I'm working to try to correct this situation. At least, you know, say things that embarrass people in open situations because of the position that I have. I've done this. And I pay my tithe. And I'm proud of it. Right down to the last penny I pay my tithe. And here I jump all over this person. That's me. That's me Jesus is talking about. And then he says to them, he says, these things you should have done without neglecting the others. In other words, it doesn't make your tithe bad. Keep tithing, but don't neglect the weight of your things. Verse 
Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside will be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I've done this. I can sit in a church service, and my mind can be just delightfully dwelling on some lustful, pornographic thoughts. Well, I'm sitting in a church service, and I look really good. He is talking about me. And everybody thinks, oh, look at Dr. Tour, how sweet he is. There he is with his lovely wife, not knowing all the time that my mind is so wretched. Verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adore the monuments of the righteous, and say, if we had been living In the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents and brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of Zechariah, I'm sorry, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. To sit there and to say, this word doesn't apply to me. I don't do that. Jesus says, you are the guilty one. You are the guilty one. These people stand there and they say, you know, we acknowledge our fathers killed prophets, but if we had been there, we never would have. Jesus said, you would have. You absolutely would have. And he says... I am putting on this generation, this generation, the generation that Jesus lived in, he says, I'm putting on you all the blood of the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. That's their Genesis to Revelation. We talk about Genesis to Revelation. The, the Hebrew scriptures run Genesis to Second Chronicles. The last prophet to die in Second Chronicles was Zechariah, this Zechariah. He is saying from Genesis to Revelation, from Genesis to Second Chronicles. They order their, their Old Testament differently than we order our Old Testaments, our Old Testament. So he's saying the whole thing, that whole thing I'm putting upon you. Don't say, I don't do that. The only reason you may say, I am not like that, is because you don't know yourself well enough yet. You get to know God more and you learn to love God more and you will have done these things. Both men and women alike. Women, have you ever, ever in your life dressed in a way where you showed a little bit more than you think you should have so as to get a look from a guy or a little bit longer look? Have you ever done that? Have you ever taken advantage of a guy using your physical body? Ever? Remember what the Bible says, if you're guilty once, you're guilty always. All of us have been there. 
Pascal says, It is equally dangerous for a man to know God without knowing his own wretchedness as it is to know his own wretchedness without knowing God. It is equally dangerous for a man to know God without knowing his own wretchedness as it is to know his wretchedness without knowing God. You know, part of loving God is knowing our own wretchedness and what we've been saved out of. That's part of knowing God. That's part of the relationship. You know, this, this is beautiful the way he puts it. How the same word can bring so many different meanings to so many different people. And he gives the example out of John chapter 1. I'm sorry, John chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. When Jesus meets the, the, they bring this woman who's caught in adultery to Jesus. And when the woman who's caught in adultery is brought to Jesus, it's interesting that Jesus, you know, says to the Pharisees, the ones who brought her, he says, you know, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And they end up going away. And then he says to the woman, where are they? He says, well, I don't condemn you. He says, go and sin no more. Look what the woman got. The woman got a word of forgiveness along with a stern warning. Don't ever do it again. He said, go and sin no more. What did the Pharisees get? The Pharisees got a real lesson in humility. A real lesson in humility and the exposing of their own sin. The disciples simultaneously saw that this God this man, Jesus, could forgive sins. The same lesson, multiple words. The very same word or deed of Christ in the Gospels frequently both comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. It comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. And that's exactly what we need. We need affliction in our comfort if we ever start beholding ourselves as something that we're not. Remember what Jesus said, if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. But if you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. You say, well, you know, people of the world don't see that. They don't. It is not until this Christ, this living Messiah, comes into the heart and He starts exposing our lives to us that we can cry out and say, my God, I am so much more wretched than I had ever imagined. God, thank you for dying for me. St. Thomas wrote his Summa to believers, not to unbelievers. Good arguments seldom convince atheists. This is a fact. But there's something wrong with us. If we don't want to believe, we don't. And therefore we don't see God. If we don't want to believe that we are murdering our son or our daughter when we have an abortion, we don't believe that. And, we, and then we don't see the evident fact that it's a baby, that it's a human being. The Nazi wanted to kill the Jew, so they saw them as subhuman. The white slave owner wanted to treat blacks as subhuman, so they saw them as subhuman. Then the atheist, the aborter, the Nazi, and the slave 
the, the, the slaver, give arguments to rationalize what they see. This is the way our psychological mechanism usually works. You know, this is the way it is. This is the way we are. And it's not that we're going to convince the atheist of how wretched he is. It is me. Can I see my own wretchedness? So that when Jesus exposes the Pharisee, do I see, he's talking about me. I see my own wretchedness here. And I say, God, save me, a sinner. When Jesus speaks this way, remember, if we exalt ourselves, we will be humbled. But if we humbled ourselves, we will be exalted. You will see yourself in the Pharisees as God opens your eyes to yourself. And I wish I could say that as I get older, it gets easier. It does not. The lesson of Scripture is that David, even in his latter days, in David's latter days, he ordered the census. After all he had been through, you would think that he would have seen, but he didn't. It doesn't get any easier. I wish it did. But what it does is it drives us to the feet of Jesus, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word that you come and you expose our hearts, that you have given sufficient quantity of signs in yourself that we should know to come to you. Yet you don't violate our will. So Father, I say, take our wills and conform it to you, that our eyes would be opened, that we wouldn't deny the facts around us and the very truth that you place within us. And Father, help us to see ourselves as we really are. And Lord, thank you that in your mercies you said, now I want to gather you as a mother hen would gather her chicks. Now I want to gather you. Father, thank you that in the midst of this you wanted to gather the Pharisees, but you said, but you will not have it. The Pharisees themselves resisted it, and you would not go against their will. Father, I pray for these young people that you would so soften their hearts that their wills would soften, that they would say, Lord, gather me, save me from my own wretchedness and have mercy on them. Have mercy on these young people, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.